0: Morning everyone. Good morning. How y'all doing today? What kind of a day is this? It's a, great day. it's a great day, isn't it? Yeah. So I'll say it and then you can repeat it after me, all right? This is a great day. This is a great day. God's going to do great things in us and through us today. God's going to do great things in us and through us. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. Okay, I believe that. All right, so, Father, um, we do. We just say, You are good. Jesus, You are with us. You'll never leave us. So, whatever the future holds, You're going to be with us, and that's going to make it good. And we're going to thrive in our relationship with You. We thank You for that, Lord. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. We invite your presence here this morning. Just come, open our eyes to, uh, to to more of who God is, who the Father is, who you are, who Jesus is. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, if you were here last week, you know that Wilson started a short gave, gave the first message in a short series on worship. And in that message, Wilson started off by saying that uh, the need of the hour right now, particularly for us as a church, is not more messages on power, but the need of the hour right now, and, and really in the, in the church across America, church around the world, is disciple making. Not, not that we understand how to pray for each other. We need to do that, and, and we've trained and trained here on how to do that but that we understand how to live like Jesus every day of the week, how to follow Him, and how to be like Him. And the message last week was on worship, and uh, what I, that leads me to say that Jesus Himself was a worshiper. He worshiped. And, and so, if I'm going to follow Him, then I'm going to learn how to worship and walk in a lifestyle of worship like Jesus Himself had. You know, it's pretty interesting to me that the ultimate temptation when Satan took Jesus into the wilderness, when, when Satan attacked Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't take him there. The Holy Spirit led him there. But when Satan was uh, tempting Jesus in the wilderness, the ultimate temptation was, bow down and worship me. And if you do that, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And what he was offering Jesus there was, The kingdoms of the world without the cross, but Satan would have still been in charge. But it was worship that was the temptation. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And we see Jesus worshiping actually in public in one case in Matthew, um, well, Matthew 4. Let's look at that. I'm going to read that passage about the temptation. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Uh, John Wimber, who uh, was the first leader of the vineyard movement that, uh, that made it a movement around the world, he said this He said, Becoming true worshipers is the chief assignment God has given us in this lifetime. So learning what it means to be a true worshiper of God and becoming that, he says, that's, that's your lifetime mission, is becoming a true worshiper of God. A.W. Tozer uh, said this, he said, we're saved to worship God. All that Christ has done in the past and all that we're doing now leads to this one great end which is worshiping God. And so when we talk about worship, we need to understand that it, it's far more than us just gathering and sitting through a church service or even singing, although singing together with one voice to honor God is, is kind of like the ultimate uh, worship that we experience. But it's, it's far more than that. Now, Jesus in John 12, actually we see him worshiping here in a public setting. What happened in John 12 was that Jesus is nearing the the end of His ministry, and uh, the cross is coming very quickly, and He hears word that there are a group of Gentile believers that have come, and they want to see Him. So these would be Gentiles, non-Jews, who had converted to Judaism. That was a sign to Jesus that the end is near. And it impacts him emotionally, and here's what he says, and he says this out loud for everyone to hear. He says, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And then he says these words, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So Jesus here facing uh, the cross, his his he's in turmoil because he knows what's coming, and although he's fully God, he's also fully human, and, and so he is he's fearing what's happen, what's going to happen. It, it has him unsettled and in turmoil internally, and yet at that moment of turmoil, he was able to say, "Father, glorify your name." That was worship. That was worship, and, and probably the highest form of worship we can ever engage in is when it seems like life's falling apart all around us. You, know, you might be crumpled on the floor weeping, but you make it up to your knees, and you say, God, you're good. God, in spite of what I'm going through right now, I'm going to honor you, and I'm going to say you are good, and I love you, and I, I worship you, I honor you. That's, that, that is perhaps the worship that is the most pleasing to God's heart, and that's what we see Jesus doing here. And so it's not just singing, it is submitting my life to Him, and it is living that way, it is walking that way every day in the things that, that I face. Hebrews 12, uh, 28 and 29, it's not going to be on the screen, I just want to read it to you. In the book of Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish believers that are facing persecution. And just like Jesus saw the cross coming in his heart in turmoil, they're facing persecution. Some of them have lost, lost their jobs. Some of them have lost their houses. Uh, they're, they're facing, you know, great hardship in life, and they're considering turning away from Jesus and going back to Old Testament Judaism as their worship, because that would relieve the persecution. They wouldn't be persecuted anymore. And so what the author of Hebrews is trying to convince them of is there's really nothing to go back to, because all of that was all just uh, signs and symbols pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment and the reality. And if you turn away from him, you're not turning back to something now, in this verse well, that I'm going to read to you, what he's telling them is, he's showing them what Old Testament worship really consisted of, and he's saying, look, if you turn back this, this you know, if you could turn back, this is what you'd be turning back to. But um, at one place, he says, if you turn back, then the only thing you have with God is this sense of foreboding and judgment, because Jesus is the one that keeps us from facing judgment. And so here in, in Romans or in Hebrews 12, 28, 29, it says this. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, he, when he says worship God acceptably, what that means is worship God in a way that pleases him. Worship him in a way that delights his heart. But he says, We are receiving a kingdom. And so, re- really, the first, the foundation of worship, you could say, it is being a kingdom person. Because, kingdom of God people, people who come to know Jesus, our focus is not on all the stuff of this earth. Our focus is on God's kingdom. And when we look around the world, what we see are people that desperately need to know Jesus. They desperately need to experience God's kingdom, the power and life and freedom that they can have. So he says, we are receiving this kingdom. Worship God with thankfulness. Thankfulness is a huge part of worship. But then he goes on to say this, that our, with reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. Now what he's, what he's doing there is making reference to these Jews who would know the picture very well of Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. And as Moses is up on Mount Sinai, the people are down in the valley below, and all they can see are dark clouds, lightning, thunder, and fire on top of the mountain. And it's because God was giving the law at that time. And the law, all the law does is condemn. It can't give life, because nobody can live up to the law. And so he's saying to them that they need to recognize In the breadth of who God is, if they turn back, they're turning back to to judgment, that's all, because they're turning away from the one who saves us from the judgment that the law brings to us. And so, God as a consuming fire, I I think what we need to do is just see God in a bigger way. We need to recognize His holiness. We need to recognize He's all-powerful. Uh, w- we need to recognize the fullness of who he is. I mean, think of this. You look around the world today, and, and how many of you, when you read the news, you feel overwhelmed? Just overwhelmed. It just seems like there's such evil out there. Uh, uh, Putin invading Ukraine and all the horrific things that are happening there. People starving to death other places in the world. And all of the acts of genocide that have happened over the, you know, over the years, all of this is perpetrated by Satan. And so you look at Satan and you say, look at what he's done to this world. But then you look at God and you say, God went toe-to-toe with Satan, Jesus did, and kicked his butt. I mean, the, 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 the very the very one that is perpetrating all the evil around the world right now, God crushed him. And his days are numbered. And what that tells me is God's bigger than what I normally conceive of him as being. And so, when we worship acceptably, uh, yes, it should be joyful and celebration because of God's goodness and his mercy, but also with a sense of reverence and awe. So, it shouldn't be trivial. It shouldn't be trite. Now, worship, the simple definition we gave last week is ascribing worth to God through action, ascribing worth to God through action. And the word ascribing, what that means is you see something and you speak it out. You see God's goodness and you say, God, you're good. You see God's holiness and you say, God, you're holy. You see God's mercy, God, thank you for your mercy. You are merciful. And, and we see who he is and we call that out. That's ascribing, but it is through action. So the action is both verbal action and nonverbal action, and you know, I think we all know that the, the nonverbal, you've heard this, nonverbal action communicates more than the words themselves, and so one of the things that uh, we'll talk about before this message is over is expressive worship and expressing ourselves with our body and with movement as well as with the words that we're speaking, and so worship is ascribing worth to God through action. Now, what that means is that it, it really is based upon an understanding of who God is. And in John 4, 24, Wilson made reference to this last week. It says this, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, the verse before this, it says, God's seeking this kind of worshiper, God's seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And spirit and truth worship, the way the Greek construction is, and this will be the same in English, there's only one article before the two. Uh, and, and so, it, it is in spirit and truth, meaning spirit and truth are two sides of the same coin. It's not in spirit and in truth. As if, you know, you can go away some Sunday and say, wow, that was some great truth worship, but the whole spirit part was pretty low. Or vice versa, boy, the the whole spirit part was really there, but the truth wasn't there. No, it takes both of them together to actually be worship. And the way it happens, as I've already said, is God reveals himself to us. We see him, and we respond. And the spirit part, it doesn't mean Holy Spirit, but it's my spirit, Stirred by the Holy Spirit, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about me, at my inner being, engaging from a heart level in the words I'm speaking and in the praise I'm giving and in the worship that I'm offering to God. So spirit, truth, worship is based upon revelation from God, and when we see who God is and we respond, then uh, th- that is worship, now, the Bible does say that God wants to reveal himself to us. It's his heart to reveal himself to us, to give us revelation. And revelation, you know, oftentimes what will happen is we will start worship on based upon previous revelation. And, and I know this about God, and so I start worshiping him, and I'm focused on him, and worshiping him and singing these words with the church body, and, and, and maybe dancing or whatever else but I'm focused on him and it pleases him so much and he's seeking worshipers like this, okay? He's looking for them and so he reveals his presence to us. And when he reveals his presence to us, we gain a deeper revelation into who he is. Have you ever noticed some Sundays when we worship, you you hit a point where just everything just kind of ratchets up a notch and God's presence is, is profoundly here and, and you can sense in the room something has shifted. And that's when there is just God's revealing himself to us. And we respond to this new, fresh revelation and experience of his presence. And so, um, you, you see that in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 8 through 10. Says this. Says it happened that when the priests came from the holy place the cloud filled the house of the Lord this is this is the temple the de- dedication of the temple with king solomon the cloud which represented was the presence of god this cloud fills the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord now there had been worship going on leading up to this moment for days and they have been worshiping the way they they have been taught to worship, but now this new thing happens where God's presence comes in such a powerful way that the priests themselves can't even stand up. And and sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes, our bodies react like that. Sometimes a person's knees get weak, or they they shake, or or various other manifestations of God's presence. And that's because our bodies aren't yet glorified. The day is going to come where we get new bodies that are suited for heaven. These bodies, you know, while we get brand new hearts when we accept Jesus, we don't get brand new bodies at that moment. And so my body is not designed in this fallen state to experience an overload of God's presence. And so that's what happens at times when the Holy Spirit comes. That's why people fall down or, when, um, or, or, or other things like that. But when he reveals more of himself, then we respond based upon that new, fresh revelation of who he is. Now, an illustration of uh, seeing more of God and responding, you can find it in Luke 5, 8 through 10. So Luke 5, I think it's the previous slide, Denise. Luke 5, 8 through 10. Here's Simon Peter. They've been fishing all night long. So Peter is an expert fisherman. Jesus is a carpenter. They're just getting to know each other. And Jesus says, go out into the deep and cast your nets. Peter knows that going into the deep water at this time of day is not going to catch any fish because the fish are going to be down at the bottom of the lake you know, by this time in the morning. And so he says, you know, I've, we've fished all night, haven't caught a thing. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll do this. It's kind of like... You know, like he's saying, okay, I don't want to do this. I think you're wrong, but because you're telling me to, I'll do it. And so they catch, they have this great catch of fish, and it says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he saw the, the, the huge catch of fish they got, something happens in his mind, and he sees Jesus now in a different way. And it says, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. You'll be catching people for me. And so what happens is they see this huge catch of fish and Peter recognizes, I was doubting you. I was ready to argue with you. I, you know, in my heart, I was grumbling the whole way when you told me to do this. But then I see this catch of fish, and, and my mind kind of like explodes and says, who is this guy that we're dealing with? Who is he? And, and to him then, it reveals to him his own brokenness and his own sin and that's why he doesn't know, what he doesn't know there's going to be you know, forgiveness through, you know, through the cross. He hasn't experienced, that hasn't happened yet. So all he can do is say, just don't even be here in my presence. I can't even stand to be in your presence because it makes me feel so, I'm so ashamed, I'm so broken. And so it's, that was an act of worship. Now, it's not something that, you know, we should necessarily experience today, because shame is not part of what God wants in our lives. Uh, there are times, however, when repentance demands a season of grief. And the grief is not that we are grieving so that God will see how sorry we are and forgive us. The grief is so that we, in, in our hearts and in our minds, we, the, the emotion that we're experiencing coupled with the new revelation of truth changes who we are. And it changes the way we see things, and it renews our minds. And so Peter here, though, doesn't understand any of that yet. He's just, he's just beside himself and doesn't know what to do. And notice that the word astonished leads Jesus to say, don't be afraid. You know, they're astonished. They're dumbfounded. They're, they have no idea what to do. Peter doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He just wants to get rid of him, wants to get out of his presence, and, and, and Peter, Peter is confused, and Jesus equates that all to fear. And he says, no, don't, don't be afraid. You know, we've got some good things coming. But you can see more revelation led to Peter falling on his knees before the Lord, and, and in this way, at that moment in time, worshiping. So, uh, worship is something that is just this beautiful thing that happens when we are willing to determine and to say in our hearts, God is worthy of my worship. Whether I feel like it or not, He is worthy of my worship. And worship is for Him. It's, it's, it's not for me, it's for Him. And the the uh, Bible refers to a sacrifice of praise. And the, the sacrifice of praise is when I have other burdens, things that are burdening me down. I'm weighted down. I'm struggling. And, and yet I say, Lord, I'm going to honor you anyway. I'm going I'm to worship you because you are good. The psalmist said it this way, and this happens several times in the book of Psalms, where the psalmist will be um, bemoaning his situation and calling out to God for deliverance from all the pain he's experiencing. But then the psalmist will say at the end of the psalm, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. He said, hey, in spite of all the troubles I'm facing, I'm still still gonna rejoice in God. I'm still gonna worship God. And so here, after lamenting in Psalm 71, he says, but as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I don't fully comprehend it, in other words. And so that is the, that, that's how worship often starts, at least for me it does. It often starts with distraction, and I have something I'm thinking about and a problem I'm trying to solve, and then I have to say, no, i got to take my mind off of this and put it on Jesus. Now, something I have found is it's really hard to banish a thought from your mind, because to push that thought out of your mind, what you have to do is focus on that thought, does that make sense? So, you know, what am I going to do with the car? How, how am I going to get that repaired? What, where should I take it? Uh, you know, how are we, we don't have time to get it to the garage. How are we going to do that? If I say, no, I can't think about that, I got to think about Jesus instead, the, the, really it's difficult to do that. Here's what I do. I just say, I, I take this thing that is occupying my mind, and it's up here, and, you know, Jesus is down here, and I just say, I'm going to ratchet that down, and I'm going to ratchet Jesus up. And when I do that, and I actually picture it in my mind, like on a scale, and I, and I just picture Jesus going up and that thought going down, and then focus on Him, then as you worship, He, he reveals Himself more, His presence comes, and you worship more. And, and so, it, it starts with the whole idea of truth, the truth of who He is. And then it leads often I mean sometimes it starts with truth, and, and, and the, the two sides of the coins are in perfect coordination, and I come ready to worship. That would be the ideal, wouldn't it? And that'll happen probably when we're all every day conscious of the need to worship God and to walk in a mindset of worship and, and to be finding time ourselves to worship. And, and coming then prepared in heart to worship, but oftentimes it seems that it, it starts with me based, worshiping based upon previous revelation and 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 genuine heart that wants to honor God, but not like excited. Does that make sense? I think it does. So, um, well, let's talk about how we worship here and why we worship the way we do. You know, first of all. Worship is submission of my life to Him. Okay, on a daily basis, that is worship, submitting my life to Him. Jesus in John 12, when He said, Father, be glorified, that is worship. But uh, as well, when we're gathered here corporately, and even by ourselves, worship is speaking, is making declarations about who God is. And you see in Revelation 4, verse 8... There are these four living beings like creatures that are around the throne of God, and they're there constantly worshiping God. And it says this, it says they are saying, it doesn't say they're singing, but it says they're making this statement, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, it says that they're making that statement, repeating it over and over and over again, constantly, with only one exception that I can see in the book of Revelation. We'll see that later. But 24 hours a day, seven days a week, their job is to declare God's holiness. Now, there are also in, in heaven, in the book of Revelation, this group called the 24 elders. And most Bible scholars would recognize it and identify them as representing the church and believers And so, it also says in that same chapter that the elders, they cast their crowns at the Lord's feet, and the elders then stand up, and they all say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed, and they were created. And so, here, the living beings... And which aren't angels and are not human. There's some other type of being that God created uh, in, in heaven to worship him. And the 24 elders are making a verbal statement about who God is to him, honoring him and extolling him and ascribing his worth to him, glory to him. So making declarations is a form of worship. Now singing, obviously, is a form of worship. And um, it, it says in the next chapter of Revelation, chapter five, verses nine and 10, now the four living beings and the, tw- and the 24 elders join together, and now they sing this. So before they were speaking it, making a declaration, now they're putting it to song, melody. And they say this, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book, they're singing this to Jesus actually, And break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so now they're actually singing this to God. And there's something so powerful about corporate worship, when we are all together and with one voice, we're all singing to God. God, God, gave, God invented music. And there's music in heaven, obviously. And this is something we'll be doing forever, is worshiping in heaven like this with them. And so the more we get used to that here, the easier it's going to be for us to step into that there. And this is one of the things we get to do here that is happening there. And so when we're worshiping together corporately and we're singing all one song... We just picture the fact that we are joining in with what's happening in heaven right now. We are singing and extolling the Lord and honoring Him, worshiping Him, and that's exactly what's happening in heaven at the same time. Now, a, a couple of thoughts on this. Um, th- this word new means fresh. It means a better song than anyone's ever sung before. And so it's a song that, uh, that, that honors Jesus and it's something new and fresh. And when we do this, sometimes in worship, when, when we have our worship team out here with instruments and, and their voices, and they're, and they're leading us in worship, sometimes there will be spontaneous songs that will happen. There'll be a break where one of the worship leaders will, will just make, either make up words on their own or... What we really like to have happen is when they get a prophetic song, when when there's actually prophetic worship, that this is something that God's giving to them for us all to sing together. And you can tell uh, when that happens. You can just sense God's presence in the room, and and everything is lifted when that happens. And, And so, spontaneous worship happens at times. John Wimber talked about just singing simple love songs to Jesus, just simple love songs to Jesus. And he also, it said, it said of Wimber that he said that the people that he held in highest regard were highly accomplished musicians who were humble enough to play simple music to worship Jesus. And so I don't need to play the guitar riff, I, I don't need to show you how good I am with the guitar or on the drums. It's, it's about putting it all together and all of us together worshiping God, just in, in the simplest words that we, can, that we can find to do it. Now, um, one of the things this means, I remember in Champaign we had a lady uh, from the University of Illinois that was an opera singer. Obviously, she had a highly, highly trained voice. And she was on the worship team. But she didn't sing in her operatic uh, opera, Operatic voice, is that right? She didn't use her opera voice to lead us in worship because that would, that would not have made it a us thing. It would have made it a her thing. You follow what I'm saying? And have you, have you ever been in a setting where someone has a highly trained voice and they're gonna let it go? And everybody else is singing, and it's all kind of blending together, but there's one voice that's standing out from all the rest... And to that person, we have to say that I think the musician thing here fits in that you don't have to use that voice because the goal here is for us to sing with one voice. And so it's, it's, a, it's the goal is for us to blend our voices together. And I know people will say, well, I want to give my best to God. And that's not my best. Well, in this context, your best is doing the thing that god's calling us to do, which is sing with one voice to blend together, so that's just that's just one observation I've, I've had about worship um, verbal worship uh, over the years, but I want to read you some things from John Wimber. John said this at the beginning when he was first encountering worship um, and he's just studying the Bible and he's he's just eager to study the Bible he says this he says. I took my seat on the couch a few minutes late. When I looked around the softly lit room, no one looked back. Eyes were closed, postures relaxed, a few were seated, some knelt, and two stood with their hands turned upward. The guitar strummed softly and played the same three chords over and over again, as each member of this little gathering in Yorba Linda, California, sang to the Lord. Now realize at this point in time, Wimber is a professional musician, and he he was uh, worked with the Righteous Brothers. He's in Las Vegas playing, you know, playing at the, at the clubs, and so he's he's a very highly accomplished musician. But he says this: they seem to sing forever. And then he says, what was the point, I thought? Weren't we there to study the Bible? He says, I felt the heat rise in my cheeks. My palms became sweaty, and I was embarrassed by the intimate language of the songs being played. And then to get this, Lord, am I supposed to sing like that too? I certainly hoped not. (laughs) Anybody here ever felt that way, like when you first enter into... Yet within a few weeks, I felt my heart soften. I was caught off guard by the power of the lyrics in these songs. Tears rolled down my cheeks as the music played. My mind couldn't comprehend what my my heart was experiencing. Singing those sweet, simple love songs to the Lord led me into personal revival. Intimate worship transformed my life as a Christian in fact, what I experienced in this small group became the foundation for the Vineyard Movement. Someone, at, you know, the Vineyard was the first movement to really um, promote intimate, heartfelt worship—not not entirely. There were other groups doing it too, but the Vineyard became known for that very quickly back in the '80s. And um, someone asked asked them once, "Well, how did you develop your philosophy of worship?" And Wimber's answer was, uh, we'd never developed a philosophy of worship. He said, it was real simple. We sang songs, and the ones that God showed up for, we kept singing those ones. <laughs> he said, when God, God God seems to like this song, okay, let's sing that one. <laughs> let's not sing that one anymore. Let's sing that one. And so, it was. Uh, it was very much a flow of the body of Christ singing and worshiping together that that developed this whole thing. Now, sometimes worship can be just the instruments without voices. And sometimes even silence fits into the whole thing. And so when in, uh, in 2 Kings 3, verse 15, Elisha has been called upon, he's a prophet of God. And these kings are thinking about going to war and they want to get a word from Elisha on this. And he says, bring a minstrel. A minstrel would be someone that you know, plays a guitar or something like that. And so they bring the minstrel and it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And then he was able to prophesy to them and give them the uh, answers that they needed. But for Elisha... Entering into God's presence required at this moment in time, anyway, someone playing the, the equivalent of a guitar, strumming that guitar, and just, just strumming that guitar, and the Holy Spirit came on him. So there's something about just music that God loves. I remember one time being in a meeting, it was a meeting of Vineyard pastors, and the, the guy that was going to lead us in worship was up front, kind of tuning his guitar, and once he got it tuned, then he just he just he played a chord, I think, and just went just strummed it once, and the the sound went out through the room. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit rode on those sound waves. It was just like that. That sound came. It was just like, wow, God's presence is here. And so it doesn't have to be verbal. Sometimes it's. And so what this means is, if 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 there is a musical moment where there's no singing, that's okay just keep your heart focused on Jesus. Uh, don't think, you know, don't think that something has to happen or that, you know, boy, this, you know, we don't like silence, and, and the, the, that would be partly like silence, but there is silence as well that, that is part of worship. In Revelation 8, 1, it says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, Now, there's something about this revelation that's happening in heaven at this moment in time that just stunned them all, and even the four living creatures. And for a half hour, there's no noise. It's perfectly quiet. And so, there might even be times in worship where the instruments stop, and it's just perfectly quiet. Now, if you're the kind of person that doesn't like quiet, you might want to shout at that moment, you know, Jesus, or... Hallelujah, or something like that. Or you might think, man, this whole room, I, someone needs to get this going. That's not an invitation for you to speak up at that moment. The quiet isn't, okay? It's uh, because it's, it's us all before God in silence at that moment. And that's a good thing. And that, that's the, like the blessing, it might be on the other side of the silence. It just might be right there, just the willingness just to be quiet before God for a moment, and so all these things fit into uh, corporate worship when we are together singing and, um, and, and worshiping God. So as well, art is a form of worship. That's why we have our prophetic art hallway out here. Uh, Exodus 31, verses two through five. It's gonna come up on the screen. You can read it if you'd like. But there's a guy named Bezalel. They're building the tabernacle. And this guy named Bezalel was an artist and God's filled him with the Holy Spirit. He was already an accomplished artist, enough that they asked him to do this. They asked him to create the artwork for the, for the tabernacle, but God says, well, you know, he's, he needs the Holy Spirit, really, to do this the right way. And so, we have people that get a theme, and they pray, and they create works of art, and we put them out there in the hallway. That's worship, and you can you can worship along with them as you go out and read the cards beside them, and what the what the artist was thinking when they when they created that. And then, of course, dance. Second Samuel six fourteen talks about David when they are bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, which was the Ark of the Covenant was a key. Part of their worship that was supposed to be in the temple, it had been captured by the Philistines, and it took several years for it to make its way back to Jerusalem. But as they're bringing it back in, King David it says he danced with all his might, and it says he had on a linen ephod, which would be like a I guess like a what a gown, kind of like, and he was dancing so so uh, wildly that he was exposing himself. I don't think that necessarily means he was exposing him, himself other than maybe his legs and stuff like that, but it was unseemly for him in that culture to do this. And, um, and 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 so, he's worshiping God, and then he's challenged for that, and he says, well, you know, I'll become even more zealous for the Lord than this. And so, dance is a form of worship. Now, David was a king, okay? And kings in those days could cut your head off if you didn't get out of the way. And so David has all the space he needs to dance. Now, when we dance today, what we have to consider is, where am I? And I'm not the king of this whole place. And and I have just like my voice. I want my voice to fit in with what's happening in the room. You know, my body movement has to be appropriate to where I am. and um, And... And it really, dance, when it's done right, is beautiful. You know, that's why they don't ask me to dance on stage. You know, we, we normally have, you know, someone here, I don't think we do today, but uh, oftentimes we'll have uh, some dancers up here that are just, it, and they're interpreting the feel of the music as they dance, and, and they're expressing with dance, it, really on behalf of all of us, the heart of what we're singing and how we're worshiping. And so it can be a really beautiful thing. But we do have to consider, um, you know, is this dangerous? You know, how how much space can I actually legitimately take up when there are hundreds of people in the room with me? And and that sort of thing. But uh, dance is a a, a great expression of worship and a beautiful thing. Other expressions. Um, Have you ever heard of this pew running Okay, so some of you come from Pentecostal, you, you understand Pentecostal roots. Pew running was a thing where like you couldn't do it on these chairs because the chairs would tip over, but if they're pews, they're nailed down, and they would stand up on the, like, like, where, where, like if you put your arm up right there, that's, they would stand right there and then run back and forth on the pews, and that was a sign that you were filled with the Holy Spirit, and if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, you can close your eyes and do that. And, uh, and you know what? Maybe God was in that. I don't know. I mean, if you read the Bible, there's some weird stuff in the Bible. And, and so we don't want to make too much out of that, but I just want to say this. That probably doesn't fit in our culture, all right? So if you're thinking of doing pew running, you can, you can set that aside. But... Uh, <laughs> Jumping up and you know what I've said in the past is just about anything you could see at a Bengals game you could do here except rip your shirt off and paint Jesus on your chest, <laughs> you know we prefer that you not do that okay, but um, uh, jumping up and down, uh, you know, cheering at the right moment, um, raising your hands to God, you know raising your hands it's a sign of submission it's a sign of openness it's a sign of receiving. Uh, you could do a fist pump at the right time. You know, th- that might be the thing that that is expressing the victory that we're singing about for you. That might be an expression that you want to use. But um, lots of things like that. Kneeling, obviously. Being prostrate on the ground at moments when you're just being like Peter. You're being overwhelmed with God's presence and His goodness, and, and, and you just lie before Him. But... Um, This whole thing, worship, just to conclude right now. In fact, the worship team is going to be coming out right now. I'm going to invite them out. But uh, to conclude, this worship is a response to revelation from God of who he is. And so I want to constantly be asking him for a deeper understanding of who he is. That will happen at times through life circumstances where I see who he is more It'll happen at times reading the Bible when he gives me just an understanding of what I'm reading that goes deeper than I've ever seen before. But we constantly, it might come through a dream or a vision but we're con- or, or a prophetic word that someone else gives you. We're constantly open-hearted saying, God, show me more of yourself with expectation. And then you start where you are and unless you have fresh revelation you start with revelation you already have of who he is and and you choose to direct your heart and your mind and your body towards God to declare him good and holy and awesome and wonderful and and to worship him and and somewhere along the line begin to use your body and if you're like me you know i i I very, very staid in my personality, and well, actually one time many years ago, I was watching the Steelers play the uh, Raiders, this was back in the 70s, and big play had happened, and I leapt out of my chair, halfway across the room, yelling at the top of my lungs and pumping my fists in the air, and my beautiful wife said, you should get so excited about Jesus. But somehow, you know, if, if you have that reserved demeanor, it, yeah, it's, but start with something. Tap your foot, okay? Just start doing that. Uh, just engage bodily with what we're doing. And when we had Stacey Campbell here, she talked about prayer and how important it is in prayer to move if you've ever seen pictures of the Hasidic Jews at the Wailing Wall, as they're praying, they're going like this. There's something about that motion that does something to your mind that focuses you. And, and it, so I would just encourage you, wherever you are, just enter into that. Somehow begin to, to, to move in accord with the worship that you're bringing before the Lord. So you want to stand with me? Let's pray. And then we're going to worship. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you desire to reveal yourself to us. Thank you that we get to we get to come before you and worship. And this is for you, Lord. It's for you. We just we thank you, God, that when we do this, that so often you, your presence, you just reveal your presence to us and take us into a deeper understanding of who you are. So We invite you to be here today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.